1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And welcome to The Exchange, everybody. Forget Merger Monday. It's Medicine Monday now. For the third week in a row, we woke up to promising results on a COVID-19 vaccine. But the market reaction is getting more and more muted. Is all the positivity baked in? Plus, good news for airlines and that more people are traveling. But bad news for industries hurt as COVID keeps spreading. Casinos cutting capacity, California curbing on restaurants. We've got all the details. And Bitcoin's huge backers, the whales that have thrown their weight behind the cryptocurrency and fueled its recent gains. But we start with the markets, muted though they are. Dom Chu has more on that. Hi, Dom.
2: Muted but still green, Kelly. I mean, Medicine Mondays do translate into gains for the market overall. And we're floating to the towards kind of the best levels of the day so far. Just off them, the Dow Industrial is up by about 222 points. We're up three quarters of 1%. The S&P 500 up about one third of one percent, 3570 the last trade there. And the Nasdaq composite lagging, so to speak, today, only up about one tenth of one percent, 11,870 the key mark there that we're watching so far. Now, the banks, a key focus, because as the economic recovery story starts to take hold because of positivity around vaccines, and everything else with the COVID trajectory, those banks that are most levered towards the U.S. economy seem to be doing better, at least near and medium term. Bank of America up 2% today. Comerica in the northern Midwest up about 2% today. And then Capital One Financial, a play on the consumer side of things, up 4% today as well. Remember, they've been laggards so far this year. And then if you're looking for some of those retail plays, we're near the highs of the day in names like Macy's, Nordstrom, Kohl's, Gap, Macy's, by the way, up 16%. We know how bad it's been for them. Nordstrom, same kind of situation there. The National Retail Federation, a big trade organization that represents these retailers, says the holiday shopping season could see gains between 36 and 5.2% over the same time last year. So Kelly, even with the pandemic, the NRF says consumers will spend more this holiday season. That's helping to push those retail stocks towards the highs of the day. I'll send things back over to you.
1: Yeah, those are some big moves, and and we've seen it time and again, Dom, on this positive uh, news flow. We appreciate it. Our Dom Chu back at headquarters. We are three for three on Monday Vaccine News Now with AstraZeneca today announcing the details of its vaccine efficacy. And it's not the only news we got on the COVID front. Regeneron, too, with a promising treatment breakthrough. Meg Terrell is following all of it. Uh, Meg, let's start with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Will everyone be able to get the 90% effective version? (laughs)
3: That is the question. So let's look at how they had sort of these two different uh, efficacy rates in this trial. Uh, One, as you said, was 90%. And that was in a group of patients who got just a half dose on the first dose of the vaccine. And then they got a full dose a few weeks later. Whereas those who got two full doses in the trial uh, had a 62% efficacy rate. Um, So the company says it is working through those data now and figuring out, obviously, how to make sure the efficacy is as high as possible. Uh, AstraZeneca also said they saw no hospitalizations among people who got the vaccine, suggesting the vaccine could be very protective against severe disease, although we have to see further data. The other thing that really differentiates the AstraZeneca vaccine is it can be stored in a regular refrigerator at, you know, two to eight degrees Celsius or 36 to 46 Fahrenheit uh, for up to six months. So that really improves the sort of distribution possibilities, particularly to rural areas. Now, how does this really stack up or compare in terms of the status um, of vaccines that we've been seeing phase three results on? Uh, So of course, we have the final efficacy for Pfizer and Moderna as well. And experts would say you can't compare apples to apples across trials, but the numbers are looking around 95% efficacy for both Pfizer uh, and Moderna. And they are moving through the regulatory process here in the U.S. Pfizer, of course, has submitted. They have a a meeting of outside advisors with the FDA on December 10th. We could see the FDA act after that. And Moderna is expected to submit uh, to the FDA soon. Now, AstraZeneca, because it has those more mixed data, and because these trials come from outside the U.S., they're going to have to talk to the FDA about what uh, is the path forward for them here and what more data might be needed. So TBD on that. There are also differences among these vaccines in terms of how much they cost. And you can kind of deduce the price uh, per dose of these vaccines based on the supply agreements that they've struck, at least here in the United States. AstraZeneca is the lowest. They did get support from the U.S. government, um, but you're looking at less than $4 a dose if you take in the development support that they got as well. Pfizer, of course, did not take development support from Operation Warp Speed. They struck that supply deal, so they're getting almost $20 a dose. And for Moderna, their supply deal is about $15 a dose. But if you add in the billion dollars almost that they've received from the U.S. government, it's about $25. And they've said for smaller volume agreements, they could be striking deals at $37 a dose. So quite a span there for all these vaccines. Finally, we'll just talk about the Regeneron news very quickly. They got FDA emergency use authorization of their COVID antibody cocktail. Um, That is the second antibody drug for COVID to get out in the market after Eli Lilly's. Uh, But supply is going to be limited at the beginning. This is indicated for people who've been just diagnosed with COVID-19, who have mild to moderate disease, uh, who are at high risk of being hospitalized or seeing severe disease. And so because supply is limited, it will be for the high risk groups at the beginning. Kelly?
1: Yeah. And Megan, you know, I encourage everyone to go back and watch those executive interviews that you did this morning. But my takeaways from Regeneron, on the one hand, were that their treatment could be really useful in terms of preventing the spread of COVID, maybe even preventing uh, COVID itself. From uh, AstraZeneca, I thought it was interesting how, you know, they're learning as well about the dosage combination that that makes it more effective. So um, some really interesting stuff in, in both of those. But here's my question for you you know, here we have these scientific trials that, you know, these are not embargoed, um, you know, sort of monthly data releases from the U.S. government. Why is that they're being released on all of them on Monday morning, three Monday mornings in a row? I mean, what explains that timing?
3: That's such a good question, Kelly. And it's it's not something that it occurred to me to ask. But um, I don't know if it's that these data safety monitoring boards meet on Fridays and look at the data um, and, and if that's what happens and then they look at it over the weekend and then you know, they announce on, on Monday morning. But in all of the anecdotes we've heard about the, the companies learning about the data with Pfizer and Moderna, for example, you know, they're getting the call on Sunday and then they're releasing the information Monday right. morning. So, so perhaps it's something about the, the, when their data boards meet.
1: It's just interesting to me that it's one after the other after the other. It's not even like we got two at one time and then there was a breaker. Or, or why we don't get them in the middle of the week. Do we know anything about who might be next at this point, Meg?
3: Who's left? Yeah. So Johnson & Johnson is in phase three here in the United States. I think getting the data on Monday of next week would be uh, earlier than most people are expecting. But when we're three for three on vaccine Mondays, I will be up early on Monday morning and ready in case it comes.
1: Yeah. Exactly. I imagine you have to keep that phone close by all night (laughs) just in case. Meg, thanks so much for all the work that you've been doing for us. Really appreciate it. That's our Meg Terrell. And all of this positive vaccine news is giving markets, well, a slight boost today. Remember, it's the third Monday in a row with a rally. On Pfizer's news, which was first, the Dow soared 835 points, and futures were up almost 1,500 points that day. On Moderna's news last week, the Dow jumped 471 points. Today, well, we were up as much as 300, but we're pairing those gains even now. Dow's up 235. So what does te- what's that tell us about what this market is priced in? Joining me now to discuss that, Nancy Tangler is Chief Investment Officer at Laffer Tangler Investments. And Abe Jespande is uh, Chief Investment Officer at Centerstone Investors. And it's great to have you guys both here. So, Nancy, what does this tell you about the markets? In some ways, it seems like this is an inoculation against the bad COVID news, but we have to imagine at this point that widespread distribution of a vaccine is is more or less fully priced in, right?
4: I do think so, Kelly. Uh, I, I think the market is starting to look through um, the near-term effects of of the vaccine and getting people back to normal, if you will, despite the rising cases. and And I think that's manifested through a lot of the underlying fundamentals. The PMIs have been good. Uh, Capacity utilization and industrial production numbers have been consistently good over the past five out of six months. Uh, If you look at the consumer, free cash flow at all time highs, balance sheets in fabulous shape, um, pent up demand with all the savings that's, that's gone on this year, it's declined somewhat, the savings level, we still are above normal. And then you've got the housing market, which, you know, despite its rally, the average um, American or or cumulative American has about 20 trillion in equity to 10 trillion in mortgages. So there's a lot of good news flowing behind the disease and the vaccine. And I think the market is starting to anticipate stronger earnings in 2021.
1: Okay, Abbe. I'm looking through some of your uh, names that you like here. Granger, Brunswick, 3M. Uh, these seem like they are geared towards being reopening plays, right? So, again, if this market is kind of looking through to vaccine distribution, doesn't it also have to be looking through to that phase of the stocks that are working and, and starting to leave the stay-at-home trades behind? Although, as we saw last week, you know, the, on any given day, you can all of a sudden have a big reversal and zooms up 6% again.
5: Yeah, I mean, there's probably a couple of phases that we have to look forward to here. The stock market probably discounted too much too quickly, as it has been doing a lot of these days. And there's this intermediate stage where, um, you know, I think even AstraZeneca says 100 million a month or something like that. It's going to take a while to roll this all out to the entire world. In fact, you might see like the so-called herd immunity before we even get the vaccine fully rolled out. Regardless, though, if I'm looking at the stock market as a collection of individual stocks, uh, rather than rather than like this monolith. Um, we we at Centerstone continue to find plenty of interesting things to buy. Um, there seems to be a lot of undershoot and overshoot by the uh, momentum driven by by stock market investors in certain industries. And there was an, a complete overshoot on the way down for many industrial companies and we're starting to see what looks like more of a durable uh, recovery globally cyclical recovery, um, one which which has the possibility of, of the potential of, uh, even surviving, if not thriving, during the next couple of months as the as this, uh, this season gets on here. Uh, for the most part, though, we're able yeah. to find interesting I- ideas all over the world.
1: Well, and Nancy, I'll end by asking you why, you know, you kind of pound the table on Honeywell in particular right now. Why is that so emblematic of where the market is today?
4: Well, I think this is a company that ha- is in uh, a number of the recover, you know, the the reopening segments of the market, like aerospace. But also, they've managed to digitize their business in a way that that makes them look a little bit more like a technology company and a little bit less like uh, a cyclical industrial company. Extraordinarily well managed, um, and they've raised the dividend, uh, you know, the last eleven years, which which is really emblematic of management's confidence in future earnings. So we've been big on this growth at a reasonable price trade for the last six, nine months. And, and it's, I think, kept us out of the value versus growth debate and uh, benefited our underlying portfolios.
1: Yeah, yeah, at least that way it doesn't drive you crazy uh, talking right. back and forth about it all the time. And as we read in the journal today, uh, dividends are coming back. Uh, thank you both for joining me today. Talk through these markets. Appreciate it. Nancy Tangler and Abe Dishbande. Thank you. More than 100 economists are now urging Washington to send out another round of direct stimulus checks. Remember, it was once a foregone conclusion, but we've since seen that discussion go nowhere. The economists want these checks aimed, again, at low-income households. Elon Moy has all the details for us. Elon?
6: Well, Kelly, the full list is now up to 125 economists and they're calling direct checks one of the quickest, most equitable, most effective ways to prop up American households during the pandemic. The letter reads, we know that the next stimulus needs to be big, immediate and direct and lasting until the economy recovers. Now, this letter does not say exactly how big those checks should be, but it does emphasize that direct payments do work best when they're targeted at the bottom half of households. And that could help quell some criticism about the first round of stimulus checks, which is that a lot of people who got them didn't really need them. And that's going to be important because Congress is facing a lot of competing priorities right now. Just today, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Richie Neal, uh, called for an extension of expiring unemployment benefits. Meanwhile, President-elect, Joe Biden and Democratic leadership have discussed the possibility of a lame duck COVID relief package that includes uh, money to fight the virus, relief for families and small businesses, state and local aid, jobless benefits, health care. So, Kelly, the question before Congress right now is if the political reality means that you can't do everything, which policies are going to get you the most bang for your buck? Back to you. All right, Elon, thank you very much. Elon Moore, the state of play.
1: For more on the story, let's bring in Claudia Now She's a former Federal Reserve economist and a co-signer of this open letter. Claudia, it's, it's good to have you. And to me, anecdotally, the sign of people's interest in this topic is that every time that you look at YouTube, one of the top 10 trending topics is second stimulus checks. And are they coming? What would you say the
7: odds are right now? So I think they're important to have it happen. I think we've seen since this summer the odds against more relief. There is a heightened partisan environment in Washington, but the American people need more help. And it has become obvious in recent weeks with the case counts mounting, the improvements and people getting back to work are slowing. People need money. They need some support. And Congress knows how to do it. They, they got to get it done. How much would it cost, Claudia? What,
1: what kind of uh, sort of big picture number are we talking about? Because when they're going down and saying, okay, the pot of money is going to ha- be 600 or 700 or 1.1, whatever the number is, trillion dollars, um, how much would your version of these direct checks cost?
7: The first round of the checks that went out earlier this year cost $300 billion. If they were more targeted, it could be a little bit less than that. Frankly, I think targeting is hard right now because millions of Americans have lost income this year, and the IRS does not have it up to date. But whatever we can do to get the money out is worthwhile. It is one part of relief discussions that has a lot of nonpartisan support. It is not that hard. You ask Americans, do you want another $1,200, $500 for a kid? they're going to say yes, and we're going to empower them to use that money for what they need most right now. That is the biggest bang for the buck you right. we well, could imagine.
1: Yeah, the popularity, I think, is no surprise. Um, what is interesting is the trade-offs. So if we say, OK, there's funds from the PPP program that are left over, can be repurposed, or you know, if it comes down to should we do these checks instead of another round of PPP, or instead of Uh, the Restaurant Act, or instead of Hotel Industry Aid, I mean, why should these take priority when, as you've mentioned, there are targeting questions and it's really hard to know who actually needs them the most and make sure that those people get the most help.
7: Right. I mean, this is hard. The trade-offs are real. I think you got to go to stuff that's up at the top of the list. Priorities, things we know how to do, things we know work well. The way the system is set up, if Congress passed them and we said more direct payments, they would be in people's bank accounts within a week. Like, we could really use a shot in the arm right now. It is true. I would like to see a relief package with trillions, S at the end, and yet that that doesn't look likely right now and we can't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. I do think there's a case for getting money to families, getting money to small businesses, especially those in leisure, hospitality, places we know are hard hit, and we have got to get these long-term unemployed through this winter. This is a hard time, and it is unconscionable to cut off money to the hardest hit, but frankly, a lot of Americans are being hit hard.
1: No, absolutely. And I think, again, it's a question of, you know, do you it, it, target those industries that are most affected to make sure that, you know, the people there don't end up in worse shape versus sending the checks to households directly. Uh, but still, again, Claudia, thank you for making the case, especially as these talks get uh, hopefully a second wind to them. I appreciate you joining us today. Great. Thank you so much. Claudia Sam with the prospects of direct stimulus checks. Coming up, the China challenge. The new administration will look to rebuild global alliances. But could that nice neighbor approach hurt our ability to confront our biggest partner, China? Plus, one strategist says the worst is yet to come in the muni market, with downgrades and budget shortfalls on the horizon. He'll join us. And Nevada cuts casino capacity in an attempt to avoid a complete shutdown. But is it too late? We're back after this.
7: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
1: Welcome back. President-elect Joe Biden's cabinet is taking shape. Veteran diplomat Antony Blinken was named Secretary of State earlier today. He served as a national security Advisor and deputy secretary of state under the Obama administration. The Wall Street Journal describing him as a foreign policy centrist whose priorities would include rebuilding U.S. relationships around the globe. But after four years of America First policies, is rebuilding our global alliances a better way to confront China, or will it actually blunt our ability to do so? Let's bring in Marco Papet. She's chief strategist at the Clock Tower Group. Marco, it's great to have you back. And I mean, going back to 2012, you started writing about this kind of new Cold War between the U.S. and China long before many others came to the same conclusion. What do you expect happens? And again, for all the American multinationals listening to this right now, what is the Biden administration most likely to bring? Is it going to be the appearance of calm, but a deterioration of America's strength in this relationship?
10: Well, I think there's only so much that policymakers can do to reduce their constraints. And I think appointing Tony Blinken is a good step towards uh, mitigating some of the constraints that the Biden administration is going to face. But if you're a you know, C-suite executive in a multinational corporation right now, you have to understand that the, the deterioration in relationship is structural and that it's going to be difficult for the Biden administration to play the two-level game between you know, Beijing and their domestic uh, opposition.
1: The reason why I think people are talking about this so much right now is we have a lot of people out there saying you absolutely want to own stocks with China exposure right now. Uh, It's going to be a friendlier relationship between these two countries. There's not going to be any risk of, you know, business being undermined by some of our geopolitical objectives. I mean, do you think that's right that people can kind of comfortably own, whether it's the handbag names or Estee Lauder or the big you know, manufacturing companies that those who rely on doing business with China should expect to do quite well?
10: So both yes and no, unfortunately. Uh, yes, uh, there is a structural impediment and constraint to further trade war uh, blowing up. I don't think that, you know, in 2012, it was time to predict uh, a deterioration in relationship. But we're eight years removed from that. That forecast came true. We cannot simply extrapolate it linearly. I think that there are constraints in both China and the U.S. in terms of making the trade relationship worse. However, on a short-term 12-month horizon, what's going to matter more for that basket of stocks is what's happening domestically. And it's pretty clear that Chinese policymakers are trying to signal to us through multiple avenues – that they uh, intend to deleverage the economy and that they do not expect to continue stimulating. In fact, very similar to the report Ilan made earlier about what's happening in the U.S.
1: So if that's the case, though, I mean, China is still the economy that's emerging first, fastest and arguably strongest from the global pandemic. I mean, that puts them in a pretty powerful position to dictate the terms of commerce over the next few years, doesn't it?
10: Yes, but the stock market has already priced that in. So if you look at the performance of uh, Chinese stocks this year, it's been stellar. But notice that CSI 300, for example, has not really done that much since Biden was elected. It's only up about 2%. And I think that that's telling us, look, Chinese stocks have already done what they were going to do. They've already priced in this advantage that China has in resolving COVID first. Going forward, there's going to be more of a uh, a range-bound market in terms of Chinese equities Not so much because of a U.S.-China relationship, but more because policymakers domestically are just focusing on antitrust. They're going after their big tech, so there's a huge stroke of pen risk. Uh, They're uh, setting three red lines on the real estate and property developers. Uh, And also, they've introduced some volatility in the sort of corporate bond market, onshore corporate bond market, that's likely to lead to further agita in the equity market as well.
1: Well, and you've just given us a couple of ideas there, maybe about what parts of the Chinese market to avoid. Um, what would you say is best positioned? So just to kind of put a, a point on that, what, where would you say is kind of well positioned for this era of, that we're heading into? And, and are there any other places that you would warn investors about?
10: So first of all, what I would say is that in terms of the Chinese market, definitely consumer plays are going to do well. Anything that uh, the Chinese policymakers have sort of introduced tailwinds to, so innovation, tech, uh, we've seen, for example, the Chinese, you know, Tesla challenger, uh, Neo do extremely well. Those kind of plays are probably going to do well over the next uh, 12 months, regardless of the leveraging uh, points that I've raised. Uh, In terms of the broader uh, implications of Chinese deleveraging, if Chinese total social financing, so their sort of broad measure of credit, drops from the current 13.5% annual growth to something like 10%, you know, um, East Asia EM plays are likely not going to do well. So whether it's South Korean market, Taiwanese, um, broader sort of EM Asia is going to struggle if China takes a step back. Uh, And the other question that I have is what is the interplay of Chinese deleveraging in a world where next year we also have less fiscal stimulus in the U.S., at least less than the market expected. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for the U.S. dollar? That's going to be a very difficult question to answer, but I think, and look, I'm a bear on the U.S. dollar over the next decade. I think we're in a bear market. But I think over the next six months, dollar could catch a bid and catch some of these reflation trades off guard. And although I'm bullish Hmm. over the next cycle, bullish commodities, EM, all that stuff, if you're a long-term institutional investor – I think it makes sense. Over the next six months, I think some of these inflation trades we've all gotten really addicted to might uh, suffer.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating, Marco, because we've also covered the dollar a lot here lately, and whether it, you know it's going up or down, and both in the short and long run. Uh, thank you so much for all the nuance that you provided today. Really
10: appreciate Anytime, it. Anytime, Kelly. It's Marco Popage
1: is with Clocktower Group, talking all about China. Coming up, despite warnings about holiday travel, Americans are still getting on planes. We'll look at who's benefiting from that. Plus, from Stan Druckenmiller to Rick Reader to Bill Miller, the big money is becoming more of a believer in Bitcoin. Now there are two unlikely new whales in the market, not your typical investor. We've got all the details coming up. And don't forget, you can always watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two minutes.
8: This podcast is supported by FedEx.
1: Welcome back to the exchange. Markets are rallying right now, but, uh, you know, given the vaccine news this morning, nothing like we saw on the Pfizer breakthrough a couple of weeks ago. So the Dow is up 313 at the session highs. We're up 220 right now. And the Dow is the outperformer, so definitely a reopening rotation feel today. Three quarters of a percent gain. s and up a third of a percent. NASDAQ. Higher by just about a tenth of a percent. Energy is the big outperformer in the sectors today. It's jumping more than four percent. Financials and industrials are also leading. Uh, on the flip side, healthcare and utilities; those are the laggards. And interesting that technology isn't really getting hit that that hard. Uh, here are some of the individual movers. Shares of Roku are higher after Needham raised its price target from 255 to 315, making it the new street high. Accelerating cord cutting coupled with multiple devices and homes; some of its reasons for the upgrade. Roku shares are up five percent today and more than 100 percent this year. Shares of Boeing are higher on news that Europe is set to unground the 737 max in January. Comes after the FAA officially ungrounded the jet here last week. A Boeing nearly five percent gain. That's good for 60 some points on the Dow. And finally, take a look at Tesla, the stock hitting an all time intraday high. It's up 27 percent in a week. Wedbush raising its price target on the stock to 560, saying its new bull case target is $1,000. Remember, that's post-split. Tesla did a five-for-one split, so they're basically saying a $5,000 price target on a pre-split basis. Just incredible. Tesla up 6% today.
0: Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC news update. Hi, Sue. Hi, Kelly. Good to see you. Hi, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour, saying General Motors strongly agrees with President-elect Biden's goal of reviving the American auto industry by moving to electric vehicles. CEO Mary Barra says that GM is no longer backing the Trump administration's legal effort to stop California from setting its own emissions rules. She hopes other automakers will follow suit. President Trump is privately critical of his legal team's so far unsuccessful efforts to prevent states Biden won from certifying the results. NBC News says Trump is complaining about claims of broad conspiracies being made by Rudy Giuliani and recently removed lawyer Sidney Powell. According to one source, Trump thinks his legal team is made up of, quote, fools that are making him look bad, end quote. And President Trump's biggest Wall Street backer says it's time to move on. In a statement, Blackstone's co-founder Steve Schwarzman says the election outcome is now certain and he is ready to help Biden rebuild the economy after COVID. You are up to date, Kelly. That's the news update. I'll send it back to you.
1: All right, Sue, thank you so much, Sue Herrera. Ahead the nation's biggest economy is in turmoil. California's Los Angeles County is shutting outdoor dining as COVID-19 cases spike. The residents are fighting back. We've got that story. Plus $65 billion flowed into the muni market in October, despite some huge budget holes at America's largest cities. Is the market overlooking big risks, especially as the Fed pulls back? We'll discuss in a couple. Stay with us. The number of covid cases does continue to surge across the country with hospitalization setting a record for the 13th day in a row. And we're seeing more and more restrictions. As a result, we have team coverage tracking the economic impact uh, today. Phil LeBeau is in Chicago with how airlines are dealing with crowding concerns. Condessa Brewer has the latest on Nevada's casino crackdown. And Aditi Roy is looking at the fallout from L.A.'s plan to end
9: outdoor dining. Phil, let's start with you. Kelly, it is a relatively quiet Monday here at O'Hare, but there is no doubt the pre-Thanksgiving travel rush is on. The passenger levels this weekend across the country, the best since before the pandemic began back in March. We're looking at passenger levels being down 57% this weekend. An average of a million people were flying every day last weekend. That along with the relatively positive news regarding a possible vaccine from AstraZeneca, has the airline stocks moving higher today. As you take a look at these airline stocks, keep in mind that they are looking at Thanksgiving weekend to be down anywhere from 50 to 55%. It's not great, but they'll take it relative to where they've been, which is down 65% leading up to this week. Kelly, back to you.
1: You know, Phil, everyone's struggling with the safety of traveling, whether it's by plane or by train, uh, if they are you know, getting together this week, uh, yeah. are, have the airlines differed in how they're tackling this or, or is it pretty uniform in terms of what they're doing these days?
9: Well, there's some slight variations between the different airlines in terms of uh, expressing to their customers the steps that they are taking to ensure their safety in the airport, at the gate, and then when they get on board, But generally speaking, the airlines have all come out with the same approach. you got to wear your mask. The planes are all being disinfected. They're being wiped down. They are trying to take as many steps as possible to ensure for their customers that it is safe to fly.
1: Yeah, and there's American leading the way up nearly 6% today, surely helped by the vaccine news. Phil, thank you so much. Phil O'Boat O'Hare in Chicago. Casinos are meanwhile facing tighter restrictions from shorter hours to reduce capacity. The gaming stocks have surged off their March lows. They're a double or even triple from then. So what happens now? Contessa Brewer is here with the latest for us. Contessa?
11: Hi there, Kelly. Nevada's governor has just ordered casinos in that state to reduce their maximum occupancy from 50% to 25%. Starting tomorrow, he's issued a three-week pause. Of course, he's trying to avoid a total economic shutdown like the one they had this spring. Nevada's daily new coronavirus cases have surpassed 2000 this week. In the past, casinos have argued that they struggle to break even at 25 percent capacity because that occupancy limit also has to include employees. And the rollback is particularly troubling for Las Vegas, the strip, which has struggled to regain tourism especially in that midweek part. That's where group businesses um, conventions, conferences, sales meetings, or the lack thereof, really matter. So poor, in fact, is midweek visitation that MGM has just announced Mandalay Bay and, and the Mirage will close Monday through Thursday. That joins the Palazzo owned by Las Vegas Sands and Encore owned by Wynn doing the same thing. Definitely not the direction these companies were hoping to go this holiday season, but Casino sources I spoke with today tell me even before coronavirus, this is, in fact, their slow season. And if they can manage to book 25 percent capacity, hey, they would take it and feel pretty happy about it. Kelly. And
1: maybe that explains the stock price reaction contested where we're not seeing declines. We're seeing for the most part still some small gains. But it's interesting what you said that when they lower it to 25 percent, that several of them just choose not even not to be open at all
11: well and and in fact they're closing it down to try and manage their expenses but one th- other thing that they mentioned to me is that this discourages the local businesses that have gotten sloppy in enforcing social distancing and the like it, inf- it it enforces the local businesses to do it which could lift uh the the restrictions for all businesses come what may the other thing is vaccine on the horizon and these casinos have really been out in front for instance When Resorts is developing its own lab, it has really been on the forefront of this testing. It is looking forward to making group business viable once again and has been on the forefront of the science to do that. Wow.
1: Now that we're talking Vegas and thinking about that Raiders game last night, but that's a different story. Contessa, that was entertaining so in its, it's own on. way. Contessa, we appreciate it. Uh, Contessa Brewer out on the strip for us. Further west L.A. County is shutting down outdoor dining as the state deals with a record spike in COVID cases. Aditi Roy is here with how residents are preparing for these restrictions. Aditi, it sounds like they're not, not so happy about it.
12: Oh, definitely not. It's been a, a tough go with them. And California, of course, having a really rough time with COVID. And now L.A. has announced these drastic measures. Those numbers statewide are skyrocketing at record highs. Friday alone, the number of new cases was an unprecedented 15,500. L.A. County is one of the top counties contributing to that spike. Its five-day average is more than 4,000 new cases. As a result, L.A. County will be shutting down outdoor dining at bars and restaurants starting on Wednesday. The closure will be in effect until in, at, at least three weeks if those numbers don't subside. The county says it will impose an even stricter order, a March-style shutdown. Restaurants can still be open for takeout and for delivery, but many owners who have already been struggling say a move like this could mean the end of their business. Keep in mind, the governor's late-night curfew also went into effect on Saturday, and that was met with many protests as well. to you Kelly.
1: Aditi, one of the talking points uh, as everyone's trying to sort out the pandemic response has been to compare California with Florida. You know, in Florida there's very few restrictions. Uh, In California there's quite a lot. Why is it that California has still struggled so much with these outbreaks?
12: Mm, It's really interesting. Uh, What officials will say is that it's just a matter of of just behavior of social gatherings. You know, California was restricted for a while and then they started opening things up. And in many places, you're just seeing immediately not just family gatherings, but people gathering even in indoor, you know, homes and things like that. And once you gather indoors, the masks do come off easily. Once food is involved, for instance, the masks come off and uh, that's how things spread.
1: Yeah, and they're clearly wanting to take every possible precaution here, closing outdoor dining in L.A., too. Aditi, thanks. Aditi Roy in California today. Coming up, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin pulls the plug on some Fed lending programs that were being tapped by the muni market. One strategist says it was the wrong move at the wrong time because there's a lot of pain to come in the sector. He'll join us. Don't go anywhere. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Since Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said he was pulling the plug on the Fed's lending facilities, including one servicing muni debt, the municipal market has actually drifted higher. His decision will allow Congress to reappropriate $455 billion in CARES Act funding, which some say was sparsely accessed in the first place. But my next guest says his program should be extended to next year because the worst is still to come. With me now is Tom Koslick. He's head of muni strategy and credit at Hilltop Securities. And Tom, it's all interconnected to some extent, right? I mean, it's interesting that you could say Secretary Mnuchin's decision, while obviously not predicated on the fact that there will be a Biden administration, if there is a stimulus package that includes more state and local aid, it would seem to justify his kind of move, right?
13: Yeah, I think that there's a, uh, if, if, if there is a situation where there's a significant amount of not only COVID relief generally for the economy, but specific targeted, You know, a and or a significant amount that can go to state and local governments. I think that that would be one thing, but we've seen going back to August that you know things are really, really moving slowly, if at all, on the COVID relief side. And you know, it it seems that aid for state and local governments has been one of the top, one of the topics or one of the themes that's really slowed things up.
1: Right, for sure. And the reason why it's uh, divisive is because, you know, people don't want it to turn into a bailout when that money could be better spent on really suffering industries. And frankly, the municipal market, as you and your colleagues keep telling us, we've been doing a lot of coverage on it. The muni market has held up pretty well. I mean, who's even using this Fed facility? I thought it was basically just New Jersey or something, right?
13: Well, and, you know, the the fact that the municipal liquidity facility has only been tapped by two issuers really shouldn't be a uh, that shouldn't be you shouldn't look at municipal credit and think that just because it was tapped by two two issuers that uh, the worst isn't yet to come i think that the worst is yet to come with regard to downgrades outpacing upgrades i think that's going to end up happening for years and the municipal liquidity facility was put together so it was really only supposed to be used as a last Resort In a last resort, in a situation like if we saw something like what we saw back in March and April where issuers were not able to tap the market because back then uh, the municipal bond market essentially froze. And and the Fed put that program together as a last resort to make it so uh, not only issuers could access liquidity, but also so the market knew that issuers had an opportunity to, to access liquidity if the market did freeze again.
1: Right. And I think the problem is we know that the Fed can do that again. You know, if we spin forward six months, depending on what happens with the next relief package, if we start getting headlines about layoffs and defaults and major cities needing to file for bankruptcy and that kind of thing, I mean, don't we all expect that the Fed or somebody will step up and say, hey, look, we're here to backstop this market to make sure that it doesn't create a broader credit uh, crunch. But, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and Congress can act too. So it sort of feels like why act now with money that the restaurants, the hotels, you know all these different industries? We had a segment earlier this hour about whether a second mm-hmm. stimulus check should be coming. Why keep those funds appropriated for the muni market?
13: Yeah, first of all, those layoffs in the state and local government sector are already happening. Uh, over the last two months, we saw uh, about 300,000 uh, layoffs in the state and local government sector. I expect that without targeted uh, you know significant aid for state and local governments that that's going to continue. And I expect that when we can, when we see revenue levels of revenue at the state and local government continue to drop, because I understand you know there's all kinds of uh, there's all kinds of enthusiasm about the fact that vaccines are going to be uh, ready in a matter of months, uh, but you know the the point at which those vaccines are ready to be distributed, number one, and then number two, the fact that you know state and local government revenues and revenues for uh, airports and transportation insurers. Those aren't. That's not going to come back immediately. Those revenue streams are going to take months, if not in some cases years, to come back.
1: Yeah. So, how many major cities or major public works do you think are in danger of not being able to pay their bills in the next year or so?
13: So, I, I, you know, getting back to the municipal liquidity facility, I think that, that that's one topic. The, the topic about the municipal liquidity facility is a situation where the Fed put that program together so issuers would have an opportunity to access uh, liquidity without the market. Uh, that hasn't happened. You know, we haven't, we, we haven't been concerned about that going back to April because we're actually going to have a re- – we're likely to have a record year of bond issuance this year we're probably going to have 450 billion if not more of bond issuance this year. The situation that we're that we're most concerned about is a situation that isn't just, you know, in a couple of weeks or in a couple of months, but you know, we're still at the beginning of this third wave and I think that there's still a lot of uncertainty that investors and analysts need to think about. You know, I think it's fine to have a optimistic case, but I think it's also important to have a uh, a base case and also a situation where, you know, there's a, a case where, again, revenues don't come back quite as quickly as what folks are hoping they come back at.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, you certainly look at the budgets of some of these. Again, I use cities as as the big example, some mm-hmm. of the coastal cities, and it looks really, really dire. I don't know what the answer is, Tom, but I appreciate you coming to kind of uh, shed some light on it. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Thank Tom you. Koslick is with Hilltop Securities. Still ahead, there are two new players buying up a bulk of new Bitcoin supply that's coming onto the market. We'll tell you who they are and how it'll make investing in Bitcoin a whole lot easier. That's right after the short break. Welcome back. People using Square and PayPal are now buying up the bulk of the new Bitcoin supply coming online. This after a number of high-profile investors have turned bullish on the cryptocurrency.
10: It's staying power uh, gets gets better every day. I think the
13: risks in, of Bitcoin going to zero are, are much, much lower than they, they've ever been before. I have warmed up to the fact that um, Bitcoin could be an asset class <clears throat> that has a lot of attraction to it as a store of value to both millennials and the new West Coast money. It's hard to say, is it worth the price it's trading at today? But do I think it's a durable mechanism that, that, you know, do I think will take the place of gold to a large extent? Yeah, I do.
1: Well, it's not just the money managers that are buying Bitcoin. FinTech companies are the new whales. They're the ones bringing in a wave of new crypto customers. Kate Rooney is here with more for us,
14: Kate. Hey, Kelly, Square and PayPal users are driving some of that recent demand for Bitcoin. The payment companies let users buy and sell cryptocurrencies, with PayPal's product launching just a few weeks ago. According to some estimates, those companies are now soaking up all of the new Bitcoin coming onto the market each day. PayPal partnered with a company called Paxos. The exchange owned by Paxos had seen pretty steady volume since January. But take a look. When PayPal launched its crypto product in recent weeks, volume skyrocketed. According to crypto hedge fund Pantera Capital, that increase implies that within weeks, PayPal users are now buying up about 70 percent of new Bitcoin coming onto the market. Pantera estimates that Square had already been buying up more than 40 percent of new Bitcoin. Jack Dorsey's company launched Bitcoin trading a couple years ago, and this year the company went a step further and said it was adding 50 million dollars worth of Bitcoin to Square's balance sheet. The surge in demand from uh, fintech players may be one of the factors adding to the rally here. By offering trading, uh, these mainstream apps are able to take some of that friction out of buying. Kelly, back to you. What, is that what
1: makes this different from the? But a couple of years
14: ago, we still had. I mean, it was all retail buying. Right, right. So it's now uh, new retail buyers that are already on, you know, PayPal and Square, for example. You also have institutional buyers. So it seems like. The cohort of buyers is changing slightly, and you have Paul Tudor Jones and and other more established investors giving some of those people a little bit more cover to invest.
1: I wonder how they're buying. We'll have to ask them. You know, are they also using PayPal and Square? <laughs> because I suspect they must have a yeah. they must have more of a hybrid. High- a high-powered way. Uh, Kate, thank you very much for tracking all of this for us, our Kate Rooney. That does it for The Exchange today, but coming up on Power Lunch, it's the retail rally. A big spending prediction from the Retail Federation has the whole sector jumping. You should see what Macy's is doing today. Are investors getting too ahead of themselves, we will ask? Don't go anywhere. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same
14: place.
8: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.